The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. I mean, certainly the, the fall and, and, and the cursed nature of the creation will be in the picture here. I'm just, just the elements, though, of curse and thorns, which I think is why the Bible Society's text is going back to Genesis. They're, they're, lot, they're differently correlated here in this passage and in the Isaiah passage than they are in uh, Genesis 3. <clears throat> Yes. Are we going to continue towards the solution? Yes. <laughs> you think that after coming all this way, I just say, yeah, yeah. I, I know it's in a sense it's kind of frustrating. I have to sort of keep you there until I spin things. But on the other hand, um, you know, it's it's not. It's for good reasons that this has been a difficult passage. You have to walk. Uh, carefully, circumspectly. All right, now we saw the advantages that um, Old Covenant Israel, you see, is, is said to have as, an, as a whole here. Now the response, then, that Paul wants to focus on uh, comes out in verses 6 through 10. Verses 6 through 10. Um, let, why don't we take the time to, um, to read those, and then we'll come back and comment on a, bring out a couple of points. These things uh, became examples of us or examples for us in order that we might not, here we have a noun that really that means desirers, those, uh, those who desire, that we not, might not be, that we might not desire evil things as they, um, as they, um, uh, desired. Uh, neither, don't either be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people uh, sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to, to play or to dance. Um, the NIV uh, glosses here a bit and, and talks about uh, pagan revelry, I think. That must, I wonder how that got in there. That must be, how should I put it? The, the, that must be the anti-fundamentalist, uh, fundamentalist concern of the NIV translators about dancing or whatever, that, that not all dancing is necessarily bad or what. Anyway, um, don't either be uh, sexually immoral, practice sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Don't either tempt the Lord as some of them tempted and were destroyed by the serpents. Don't grumble, complain, as some of them grumbled and were destroyed by the destroyer. And um, actually, it would have been nice to have verse 13 up here, but I didn't have enough room on the overhead. So, um, But we're just looking at 6 through 10 now. 
the key, a- the accent, I think, what, what happens here is that Paul accents a general uh, consideration and then illustrates it in, se- in a number of, of ways. Uh, the problem is that they desired evil things. They were desirers of evil things. And worth noting here is uh, not so much uh, desire of evil, singular, but the plural, kakon. The adjective used here in the plural, um, so the thought is of the multiplicity of evil matters that they involve themselves with. Um, so that uh, the plural anticipates, indicates what gets spelled out and what follows, uh, that as desirers of evil things, they were willful, repetitive, persistent willful, repetitive, persistent sinning comes into view here. And the, uh, uh, that's documented then. The apostle documents that looking at the redemptive history, or I guess better, the unredemptive history at this point. Um, idolatry, sexual immorality, verse 8, testing the Lord, verse 9, and grumbling. In gratitude, verse 10. And uh, I think, again, without uh, preaching a sermon here, it, it's, it's striking the way in which ingratitude, lack of thankfulness, is, is correlated with uh, what we would might consider much more hardcore sins, such as idolatry, sexual immorality, uh, testing God. So that's the response. Now, what is the outcome? Well, the outcome is indicated, first of all, uh, generally, uh, or not generally, but as a first instance in verse 5 at the end, uh, they were scattered about in the desert. Scattered in the desert. In other words, they never made it to the promised land. Um, Further, um, let's see, in one day, um, 23,000 fell, verse 8. Um, they were destroyed, verse 9, and again, verse 10, they were destroyed. So, um, scattered destruction, falling. In other words, uh, uh, we can fairly say here, they were cut off definitively from the covenant community and the accompanying benefits, the benefits that are described in verses 1 through 4. Now, uh, that's the basic profile here. Uh, Let me add uh, to our discussion of 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 13, a couple of, uh, you can put them down if you will, if you want to, as as kind of footnotes. They get a bit lengthy, at least uh, the second one will. But to help us amplify now uh, what we've seen in 1 Corinthians 10. we're told that the experience of the wilderness generation, these experiences are types or examples. Verse 6, tupoi. And again, we're told at the beginning of verse 11, these things happen to them tupikos, typically, or uh, as examples. 
In other words, Paul appeals to the church, uh, to the Old Testament history here, because that, at, at, at particular points, because that history has an exemplary significance, a typical significance for us, the us of the new covenant, the us of the church. By the way, just in passing here, I think this passage on the, whole, on the old, an important discussion about uh, whether preaching should be redemptive, historical, or um, uh, exemplary, um, I think it, you know, that the dilemma just breaks down here. It, it, while that certainly poses a legitimate concern, especially the way in which uh, uh, exemplary preaching was developed, um, based ultimately from a biblical point of view, it's, it's, it's a false antinomy. Um, redemptive his, uh, historical preaching has very definitely a, a, an exemplary dimension to it, as Paul says here. Um, verse 11 says, if you have it, the text in front of it, you can see the full whole of verse 11, that these things were written down for the instruction of the church for the nuthesia. Here's one of our nuthetic verses. Um, they, uh, the redemptive historical record then, um, the, the, the nuthesia is it's not just sort of even-handed, uh, neutral in, instruction in that sense, but it carries with it, the, um, so far as I can see, the, the, the semantic edge here is that of warning or admonition. These things were written down to warn us. And the specific point of the warning, of course, is what you have in verse 12. Verse 12, that we must uh, bring in our, to our discussion. It will have a bearing back on um, uh, the Hebrews' material. So then... Let the one who supposes that he stands, the one who thinks to stand, let him uh, take heed, let him see to himself that he not fall. That's the essence, the edge of the warning. And notice then that the church, further in verse um, 11, the church, uh, the we of the church, is qualified as that we upon which the ends of the ages has come. Pointing then, you see, to the eschatological character of the situation that Paul is concerned with. Of the church as the eschatological people of God. The end of the age people. And at any rate, you can see what, it, what is happening here. For Paul now, as well as the writer of Hebrews... There is a historical analogy, an analogy on broad historical scale. There's an analogy between the wilderness generation and the church. An analogy between uh, what constitutes uh, the factors that make up the situation of the wilderness generation on the one hand, the situation of the church on the other. And we could say... Um, particularly looking at the writer of Hebrews, and this is surely be compatible with Paul, the one situation anticipates the other. Uh, the, the old covenant wilderness generation prefigures the new covenant church situation 
on the principle of the superiority of the new to the old, on, on, on the, the a fortiori consideration of how much more or how much greater for the new in relationship to the old. As that can then, on its negative side, then remember, involve in the new, uh, the how much more severe punishment, Hebrews 10 29. Um, the, how much less room for escape there is, Hebrews 12 25. Now, secondly, <clears throat> And at a little uh, greater length, uh, and at greater length, because it will will bring in a couple of other passages from Paul here. Now we need to get our overhead up again. We must um, appreciate in this passage the way a distinction is made, and that is the distinction between those who are in the covenant community, the all who are in the covenant community and who experience the advantages, the distinction between that all and those who fall away. Uh, the distinction, again, uh, that I'm concerned to highlight here for us, it's not, but this is a fairly obvious point, but we must to recognize, make sure we see the obvious. Uh, in terms of the passage, all have the advantages, but not all apostatize. In fact, um, all while all have the advantage, some the writer can say apostatize. And at one point, most apostatize. Now that distinction comes out um, uh, or, or comes through to us with a, with a, with a certain um, a, a repetitive cadence even uh, that we encounter here. It's a, a surely a, a, a deliberate uh, rhetorical effect on Paul's part. Um, when the advantages are in view, look at it this way. When the advantages are in, are in view, it's all fathers, all pastor of the sea, all were baptized into Moses, all ate the same spiritual food, all ate the same spiritual drink. So all, 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 all. But then you see, as you uh, look at the outcome in the case not of all, uh, in verses 7 through 10, we are, change our color here, uh, don't be idolaters as some of them were. Um, don't uh, be sexually immoral as some of them were. Let's see. Uh, don't tempt God as some of them did. Don't grumble as some of them grumbled or complained. So there's a contrast here between all and some. 
But so far, uh, again, um, I think just as a basic exegetical consideration in terms of the advantages that are involved, that applies to all. Now, um, this distinction I want to suggest to us seems to reflect on a principle that Paul expresses elsewhere and expresses rather pointedly, uh, and that is where? Anyone anticipate me here? Well, you'd think about it eventually. Romans 9. Romans 9, verses 6 and 7. You remember... uh, the uh, the discussion that Paul is involved in there, wrestling with this with this dilemma of of the apparent unfaithfulness of God uh, to His covenant people Israel, and the principle, uh, really, what is toward the the beginning of this passage and what controls a great part of the argumentation. Um, what Paul expresses here is, a, is is what controls a large part of the argumentation through to the end of chapter eleven. Um, and and enables him then to uh, properly identify uh, God's fidelity as well as to uh, uh, show us how we are to address the issues of election and covenant and their relationship. What Paul says is, after having... um, made the observations, it's not as if the word of God has fallen or failed. For not all those of Israel are Israel, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are all children. But in Isaac your seed will be called. That is, not the children of the flesh, not these are the children of God, but the children of the promise are reckoned as a seed. Now, um, you can feel here then, uh, or or recognize here, I think without too much difficulty, the tension in this statement. Uh, The tension is is palpable, and I think we can also say deliberate. Paul is, is, um, I think, wanting to suggest to us here that he's concerned with, with matters. Ultimately, he's going to end up with his, his doxology of, of how it, uh, inexhaustible and untraceable are the ways of the Lord. But I think he's indicating here by the way he formulates that he's addressing something that, so far as one golden formula is concerned, is just beyond words. You have to, as it were, talk around it uh, to get uh, at it. Well, let, let me um, just try to make a little more clearly what I mean uh, or, or what I have in mind here, why I express things as I just did. You see, you have key terms here, uh, sperma, seed, and techna, children. These are terms, as Paul uses them um, throughout his writings, that have a large degree of overlap. In fact, they're virtually synonymous. I didn't, I'm not taking the time to document that here, um, but you can, just, you can easily see that um, in working through... Um, a concordance. 
But now, what is happening here in these statements is that these terms, usually synonymous, or virtually synonymous, here they are set in opposition. The terms usually serving as synonyms are now make use of to express a critical distinction, even a disjunction. And notice how that happens even in the immediate context here. Uh, sperma, seed, is used in both, uh, in two senses, a broader and a narrower sense, as those senses are in fact opposed to each other. In verse 7, we have the broader sense. Uh, not because they're the seed of Abraham are they children. Not all because they are the seed, not all are not children because they are the seed of Abraham. Um, and then immediately, in Isaac, your seed will be called. So you see, your seed, just because you're a seed doesn't mean you're a seed, is what Paul is saying, in effect. And similarly, in verse 7, we have reference to the children of the flesh. Children is now qualified by a flesh. That's the broader sense of children. But then immediately in verse 8, we have a narrower sense. Now the children are children of God, children of the promise. And uh, you have the same, if you look at Galatians 3.29, you'll see the same uh, narrower sense for, for seed. Well, yeah, that's, that's just what we have to try. He's, I just want us to see that he's using it in, in, in not only two distinct senses, a broader and a narrower sense, but these are even set in opposition here. And, and we just we have to give a, a, a further account of that. Uh, even the idea of promise, it seems to me, is construed in both within this context, uh, expand, looking out just a little bit beyond uh, verses 6 and 7. We have promise in both a wider and a restricted sense. Look at Hebrew, uh, Romans 9, Romans 9, 4, uh, where he's recounting um, uh, the privileges, uh, his brothers according to the flesh, the Israelites, whose uh, is the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the law-giving, uh, worship, and the promises. So promises now are, are, are um, apparently at least associated with, with all Israel according to the flesh. Whereas when you come over to verse 8 now, um, the children of promise are distinguished from the children according to the flesh. So seed, child, children, promise are, are all given uh, a dual nuance in the, con in, in the, um, in the passage. Uh, and in fact, set in opposition. And uh, certainly whatever we have to say here further, Paul's point 
is that the resolution of this tension lies in God's inscrutable sovereignty. The inscrutability of his electing purpose. As Paul goes on to to expound on that election, as that election, again, uh, to distance ourselves without getting into a discussion here from a lot of the confusion that has come into the exegesis of Romans 9 through 11, um, well, it's always been there, but has really flared up uh, more recently, coming even closer to reform circles, uh, trying to uh, opt for the corporate or the individual, set them in opposition to each other. Paul addresses both election as both corporate and individual. And as I said, there is no single, uh, as it were, golden formulation um, that is, is, is going to relieve this inscrutability. There is no fixed, univocal vocabulary. There is no set of categories that does that for, it, for us. In fact, we, can, we, we must even say, and this will get us at the problems that we have to go on and, and continue addressing, uh, that the apostle seems, uh, just to make his point, needs to take uh, the univocal vocabulary, what is usually unambiguous vocabulary for him, and, and equivocate on it. Equivocate with, um, or at least make distinctions in its usage with, with reference to the point that he wants to get out. Now, um, we've uh, we looked at we've looked at Fabruga. We've oriented some discussion around a First Corinthians ten passage. Now let's come back to the Hebrews passages. Um, look at them again. And we'll make a, a series of six or seven, actually it runs out to nine as I have it now, nine uh, points, observations, um, that will bring us then to the conclusion of, of, of our treatment here. <clears throat> An important key to these passages, to their proper interpretation, uh, we've been wanting to lay the groundwork now, is the covenant, um, their covenantal background. So that the issue, as we already stated, that would, be, that would have been at, back at the end of point one, or point A, point A, um, the issue, remember again, is how properly to relate the corporate and the individual dimensions of the covenant that are involved here. Now, let me, uh, what I'll, I'll proceed here through uh, uh, a series of points, as I, I just said, and at least at the beginning here, um, the one will, they will build upon, uh, each will build upon what proceeds. First of all, uh, those who will apostatize, in the, looking at these passages now, those who will apostatize are within the covenant community. They are a part of that community. They are in the church. They are confessing Christians. They are those, we can say, who have made a credible Christian confession. 
Seems we ought to say that when we look at the way in which the writer applies the category of confession to the church as a whole in 4.14 and again in 10.23. Those who apostatize, in other words, are a part of the hemes, the we that the writer uh, addresses and has in view. That is their basic identity. And now, in a manner that uh, we need to uh, be careful of and, and keep in view what has been said, in this sense, they are believers. In the sense that they have made credible profession and are by the writer included among the Hemes, in that sense, we can say they are believers. Secondly, those who will apostatize share, as we have seen, in the benefits of the covenant. The benefits of the covenant. The Dorea, the free heavenly gift in 6.4. The grace of God, Chorus in 10.29 and likely also 12.15. Further, again, the word of God. The word of God in several of the passages. In other words, what does the word of God mean? Well, it means primarily the promises of the covenant held out to faith. The promises of the covenant that call for faith. And further, as you remember, even in, in the chapter 6 passage, um, the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit is a benefit, although we may qualify that in just, uh, we'll qualify that in, in just a, uh, or at least suggest a qualification in just a minute. But uh, in other words uh, here, their, their benefit is that of, um, the benefit of the Spirit working with the Word the relationship of word and spirit. In terms of their covenant identity, then, as it has involved these other blessings, they are even said to be sanctified by the death of Christ. Sanctified by the death of Christ. So that in, in the sense in which we have said under the first point that they are believers, now we must also say that Christ died for them. And we are indeed uh, negotiating a very narrow theological ledge now. Um, I think we should all be sensitive to that. And, and, and I want to um, put uh, the proper grounding to the, to the razor's edge um, that, that we're uh, 
poised on now, but I think we, we need to uh, appreciate the way in which uh, that needs to be said. Let me just remind you of, of other passages that, that come in here. Um, Romans 14, 15. Romans 14, 15. Let's just take the time to read those as they re-emphasize uh, this point. This is in the passage where Paul is addressing uh, the whole, uh, as it's usually referred to, uh, the, the, the whole uh, phenomenon of the weak and the strong within the congregation, within the church. And he says, Romans fourteen fifteen. Um, uh, for if your brother is, um, or coming to the end, do not by your eating destroy that one, defined earlier in the verse as your brother, your brother in Christ. Do not by your eating destroy that one for whom Christ died. And on the assumption that it's that it's in, that it's fair to draw a connection um, from this passage to um, the situation the writer is is has in view in Hebrews, um, that you see is where the language um, that Christ died for them come from. First Corinthians eight eleven. First Corinthians eight eleven. Again, a, a, a really, a, in, in some ways, a, lot, a, a parallel passage to, to um, Romans 14. Paul's just having to address the issue uh, of those who have knowledge, those who don't have knowledge, weak and strong, um, now in sl- configured in a different way in the Corinthian congregation. And he says then, uh, the weak is destroyed. Looking uh, the present there, uh, conditioned by the context, weak uh, would be destroyed by your knowledge, and that weak one then is the brother for whom Christ died. The brother for whom Christ died. So, um, in those that sense, a believer for whom Christ died. Now, thirdly. And this will uh, pick up on a question that I was asked during the, during the break time. The benefits that are, are uh, spelled out in these passages, they are an adequate description of the blessings that are bestowed on the entire covenant community. They adequately, to put it another way, the benefits that are enumerated in these passages, benefits... Uh, enjoyed by those who apostatize, they are an adequate description of the experience of each one in the church. These are benefits, uh, blessings, that, that, that adequately, the, the description of these blessings adequately describes the experience of those who do not apostatize as well as those who do. Remember the, the pattern we showed in the 1 Corinthians 10 passage. Pontus tenes. All have the benefits, some fall away. Or uh, remember as I, well you won't probably remember, but 
uh, at the very beginning of this discussion, the way Philip Hughes, uh, I think, very neatly captures, um, expresses what's in view in, in Hebrews 6 passage. Uh, what we have here are components of a unitary experience of evangelical grace. Components of a unitary experience of evangelical grace. Now I make that point here, thirdly, uh, because I think we are on the wrong track if we uh, try to explain these benefits as in some way non-saving benefits in distinction from saving benefits that are received only by those who do not apostatize. This is not to say, by the way, that that those who do not apostatize do not experience something that the apostatizers don't experience. That's another issue. Um, okay, let, let me say the everything again here. For uh, uh, My point is, as I said, we're on a wrong track here. If we try to explain in these passages... Uh, the benefits, as if they, cat- they are categorized that categories that refer only to non-saving benefits, in distinction then from saving benefits that are received um, only by those who don't apostatize. Now, I said that is not the same thing, and maybe this is where I confuse things, because I'm just saying it off the top of my head as it enters it here, and I don't have it down here, maybe that's the problem. Um, That's not the same thing I I think we need to bring out here uh, as saying that the, or let me put it positively, those who do not apostatize experience something which the uh, non-apostatizers don't experience. No, I've got to say that again. What I said is not the same thing as saying that the those who don't apostatize don't experience something that goes beyond what the apostatizers experience. In other words, that there is something in the total experience of the non-apostatizers that is not present in the experience of the apostatizers. That's true, and we have to get at that, but that is not the same thing, that there's this plus in the experience of the apostatizers. That's not the same thing as saying that these benefits in our passages, uh, are only apply to the non-apostate. All right? Next time around, I'll, I'll, I'll get that much smoother and better. <clears throat> uh, there is, let me qualify, though, here, um, a, a suggested qualification, a possible exception, might be found in the references to the Holy Spirit. Uh, Particularly as the Spirit might be in view, seen to be in view in these passages, as uh, the one who avenges the covenant and the violators of the covenant. Uh, The Spirit as the one who destroys rebellion within the covenant community. 
uh, background that we would have here, for instance, would be Isaiah that might be offered here, Isaiah 4.4, where the reference there, and this is just before you get, by the way, into that vineyard parable in chapter 5, or or coming close to it, uh, the reference is there to the Holy Spirit, as I believe we're to take it, the Holy Spirit as the the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. And, of course, the, uh, uh, the, 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 the unmistakable, the graphic New Testament example of this would be in Acts chapter 5, um, where Ananias and Sapphira, see, are destroyed because they lied, we're told explicitly, against the Holy Spirit. They tested the Holy Spirit. And, and along the same line, without getting into detail... I laid a lot more framework with uh, some of you anyway in, in, in working on uh, in Acts and Paul course. But you see, the Messiah, according to Luke, uh, Luke 3.17, as prophesied by John the Baptist, uh, the Messianic uh, spirit and fire baptizer, uh, he is not only the one who in that baptism blesses, that is, the wheat, but he consumes the chaff. Holy Spirit baptism, the fire dimension of that baptism, consumes the wicked. Now, fourthly here, uh, and this is uh, a first... uh, of, of a couple of more explicitly pastoral points that we can draw attention to. In view of these considerations, the, the first three points that we've been making here, we need, again, uh, I made this point before, but I, I want to accent again, the warnings here apply to every believer. They apply to all in the church. It is wrong in handling these passages uh, it's wrong for one thing uh, to see these as warnings intended specifically only for the hypocrites uh, to uh, discomfort them but Uh, Not only that is wrong, it's also wrong for any believer, for me, to conclude that they may apply to other believers, but not to me. In in other words, uh, I'm saying here, it's it's wrong uh, to say that in my case now, these are hypothetical. As if I were to say to myself, I know that I have confessed Christ. I know that I'm a believer. And therefore, it's impossible for me to fall away. It's impossible for me to fall away irrevocably as these verses described. Or, uh, describe the situation. Because now, isn't it just to such a person that, that Paul's exhortation in 1 Corinthians 10 passage um, is addressed? It would seem to just such a person, Paul, is saying, if you think you are standing, 
Be careful that you don't fall. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, uh, 11, 12. And um, of uh, a strand of passages that we could refer to here, uh, I think uh, just sticking to uh, the as close at hand in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 9.27, Paul conducts his ministry, we're told there. won't go back there and, and read those verses, but make sure uh, you do if you're not uh, familiar uh, with them. Paul describes there the conduct of his ministry, particularly the, the discipline and, and the purpose that he gives, into, gives to that, beginning especially at, at verse 24 and, and following. Um, but he, but, uh, and he uses the, the metaphors, the pictures there, of, 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 uh, um, mixes a couple of athletic metaphors to indicate uh, his, 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 his discipline and, and energy involved. Uh, but he says there that he conducts his ministry so that in the end, having preached to others, I myself should not be disqualified. The word he uses there is adokimos. And it seems to me very questionable exegetically to say that the disqualification in view that Paul has in view here is anything less than ultimate. It's an ultimate rejection that he's concerned about. And it sounds anything but hypothetical as Paul looks at himself. So we must not, in, in, uh, in, in, in some more or less subtle way, uh, distance ourselves from these passages by saying, well, they may apply to everyone else, but in my case, they're a hypothetical. Now, doesn't all this mean then? Doesn't this involve me in saying as we have um, developed the discussion. Am I not, in effect, saying here that those who are elect from eternity, those who are regenerate and by faith are united to Christ and justified, am I not saying that such elect, regenerate, and justified can fall away and be lost irrevocably? The answer to that is no. Emphatically and decidedly, no. But if I say that, if that's not the case, don't we then now have an unbearable tension? Not so much a tension because we can live with tensions, but don't we have, in fact, a contradiction within New Testament theology itself? Or alternatively, if we don't want to settle for, uh, if it appears that, uh, that we don't want to go uh, even entertain such a, a, a tension or contradiction within the New Testament, doesn't that mean then that we're brought back to the, to the position that in the case of the elect, after all, after all is said, the warnings don't apply 
They don't apply to the elect and are hypothetical in their case. So maybe that hypothetical understanding that we dismissed at the outset, maybe that has more going for it uh, than we uh, first recognized. But I think a keeping now, and I've tried, I hope you can appreciate, I've tried to, to, uh, to express the thing as, as, as pointedly and as sharply as I can. Um, I think there is more to be said and um, along these lines. I think the answer to the tensions, the dilemmas that it appears that uh, uh, if I have been handling the scriptures uh, uh, correctly here or with, uh, with a measure of correctness, uh, uh, so the scriptures have been fairly represented here, uh, the, the, the answer to the apparent dilemmas that the scriptures have gotten or brought us to here is... Uh, for us to remind ourselves of the larger framework of our own work here that, that got us into discussing these passages, and that is the writer's use of the wilderness motif, the church as a wilderness con- congregation. Remember what is a central element for the writer, a, a constitutive element for this wilderness situation. And that is perseverance, the need to persevere, the need to persevere. Uh, In a sense, you could say uh, that's what the wilderness is all about in one word, perseverance. For instance, just to remind ourselves of of the textual material, 3.6, whose house we are, if we hold fast. If we hold fast. Or a few verses later, 14. We are partakers of Christ if we hold fast to the end. And as I think I probably already noted when we first looked at these verses, but let me uh, reinforce it, underline it again. Uh, the, the very grammar here is instructive. Uh, the present and settled union with Christ, whose house we are, uh, we have become partakers, and that's actually a perfect tense, perfect tense, that present union with Christ, which is a settled matter, is nonetheless conditioned on perseverance into the future, whose house we are if we hold. We have become partakers if the present indicative is conditioned on a uh, condition by a future. And um, just to, uh, to, to note here in a way that, that, that may help, remember in the TULIP, the acronym for Calvinism, I guess I don't have to spell that out. Um, in the TULIP, all of the elements are inextricably interrelated. No petal can exist without the others. I don't want to get an argument started here, especially at one minute before one, but beware, for instance, of four-point Calvinists. A four-point Calvinist is ultimately not a Calvinist. 
They stand or fall together. Um, and uh, here you see what we're bringing to our consideration, what these passages uh, force uh, us uh, to appreciate, just thinking in terms of the tulip, that the other elements, particularly election, definite atonement, irresistible grace, the other elements are conditioned on perseverance. The definiteness of the atonement is conditioned on perseverance. Particularly as perseverance is the means or the way of appropriating the benefit. We can say that the writer knows that election um, and along with election the certainty of salvation that ultimately originates with election rooted in our election. The writer knows that election does not cancel out the seriousness of the present situation of the church. Particularly, election does not cancel out the threatened position of the church. The church as exposed under wilderness conditions. The exposed position of the church in the wilderness. Well, um, that's not the best place in the world to, uh, to break off, but um, we want to pick up on that point, particularly this category of perseverance, uh, and develop it uh, in, um, in a couple of different directions, and uh, I, that will bring us to the, uh, to the end of our discussion uh, here.